0: Well, good morning. As Dan said, it's uh, it's great to be with you. It's going to be. It's always going to be great to be with you, especially uh, given what we've been through in this uh, this season. Hey, uh, let me know. If, let me let you know about a few things that are coming up. So uh, next week we're going to continue our Joseph story, and Steve Zeisler, who is a was a longtime pastor, still part of our congregation, is going to be bringing the word to us next week in the climactic part of the Joseph story. So that's something to look forward to. And then. Uh, I'll be back in a couple of weeks to finish off the Joseph story, and then in three weeks' time, we're going to start a summer series from the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, which we are calling Stories of Faith. So that's something to look forward to as well. Now, my favorite song in the musical Hamilton is the last one. Who lives, who dies, who tells your story? So uh, Alexander Hamilton is shot, and he's killed in a duel before the age of 50, and he wanted a lot more time. He, he was a very passionate person, did a lot of writing, and uh, unfortunately, he is, his life is cut short before the age of 50. But his, uh, his widow, Eliza, goes on living, living for another 50 years. And she says, she sings, the Lord's granted me what you wanted, more time. She's singing to her dead husband. And uh, so what she does is she tries to preserve his legacy. She pours over his writings. She just marvels. She says, oh, you really can't write. You write like you're running out of time, but I have more time. I have another 50 years. And what does she do with those 50 years? One of the things she does is to pour over the writings and try to preserve her husband's legacy. But even then, she thinks it's just not enough time. And she, and she asks, when my time is up, have I done enough? when my time is up, have I done enough? What do you want to do before your time is up? In our text today, Genesis 49, Jacob's time is up. But he does something just before his time is up, and perhaps we will be inspired from Jacob as we look at Genesis 49. These are words of blessings, by the way. So, Please receive Genesis 49 as God's blessing to you. First of all, Genesis 49, verses 1 and 2. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Verse 2, Genesis 49 is now my favorite verse in the Bible listen to your father. Well, these act- this is actually is an important verse. Listen. We know the importance of listening. In the scriptures, we know the importance of how, how important it is to listen to the scriptures and to listen to what's going on in this world. And that's what Jacob, at the end, wants his sons to do. He wants them to listen to him. He gathers them for this purpose. It's emphasized in the text listen to me. Now he's speaking to 12 sons, but even more than that, he is speaking to the 12 tribes that are going to come from these sons. For he is speaking of the future. He is looking to the days to come. And the days to come, that phrase in the scriptures, in the Hebrew scriptures, often referred to days of deliverance that were to come. Things may be difficult now, but days of deliverance are coming. And that's what Jacob wants his sons to know. So all of their difficulties and strivings and problems are ultimately going to culminate in a day of deliverance. And from their perspective, it's going to be the exodus. It's going to happen 400 years from now, but it's going to come. Days of deliverance are coming. And then beyond that, of course, Jacob, in some way that we can't completely understand, was looking forward to the coming of Christ coming, the coming of the Messiah, those were the days that were coming. And now we who live in the shadow of the cross, looking back to the cross, are now looking forward to the days that are coming when Christ shall come back to consummate his reign. He has inaugurated his reign. He has inaugurated the kingdom of God. He is going to consummate the kingdom of God. So all of our strivings and problems and difficulties are going to culminate One day in the return of Christ, who is going to consummate the kingdom of God. Now, the the next thing that Jacob does here is something that's very interesting from our perspective. He's blessing his sons, but now when the next three sons come up, or the first three sons, I should say, when they come up, these words sound like anti blessings. He he more or less demotes the first three sons in the birth order. And we ask, why is that? Well, I'm not going to read the text, but it becomes clear that they're. their their gross moral failures have disqualified them, and so he moves them down. Now, this has a couple of purposes in, in, in demoting the first three sons. It makes room for Judah and Joseph to be elevated, and it also protects the people of Israel from the harsh, cruel leadership that the first three men demonstrated. And so, you know, we, we might be careful about really worrying and complaining too much if we are not advancing in life the way that we want to. We have to trust the sovereignty of God in this. Perhaps he is protecting us from ourselves. Perhaps he is protecting other people from what we might do to them if we advance to the place that we thought was rightfully ours. We have to trust the sovereignty of the Lord. And so then he promotes Judah, And Judah now has preeminence among the 12 sons. And now we think, okay, wait a second. If we know the story, yeah, we know those first three sons failed spectacularly in a moral way. But Judah did also, did he not? He was a complete wreck. He was a moral wreck, culminating when he had sex with whom he assumed to be a prostitute, but was actually Tamar, his daughter-in-law. Now, that was a spectacular moral failure. How come he isn't also demoted? It's because he immediately recognized his sin. He was able to see the hard truth. As Tamar presented it to him, the hard truth about himself, and and, and confess and repent. And then, as we see elsewhere in the book of Genesis, live a sacrificial life. So... And, of course, he's now setting the stage for David, who is to come from him, who is called a man after the Lord's own heart. In his moral purity? No, of course not. Judah failed just like, uh, David failed just like Judah failed. But he was always able to confront the hard truths about himself and to repent. And that's what makes him uh, a man after the Lord's own heart. He's able to see the truth and confront hard truths, especially hard truths about himself. So if we want to be available to the Lord to be used by him, confront the hard truths about yourself. Make yourself available to him in that way, and then live a sacrificial life and watch what the Lord does with you. So now he's going to go into blessing Judah. Now this is really interesting how ultimately this lands in Christ. Let's pay close attention to this in uh, verses 8 to 12. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Now, this would make an outstanding study, looking at each word in these verses and seeing how they are fulfilled in Christ. They anticipate the coming of Christ in an absolutely exquisite and in many times poetic way. It's just stirring to be able to see how Jacob was able to look forward somehow into the distant future and see the coming of Christ. And let me just highlight a few of the the ways in which these words are fulfilled in Christ. The, Jacob talks about the defeat of enemies. And, of course, it is Christ who disarmed Satan and his enemies on the cross. He defeated his spiritual enemies, of course. And um, Jacob talks about the sons bowing down to him, bowing down to Judah. And, of course, all creation is going to bow down to Jesus. We know that from Philippians chapter 2. All creation is going to bow down. He uh, likens Judah to a, uh, to a lion. To a lion. Do we see that in the New Testament anywhere? Indeed, we do. In the book of Revelation, uh, John calls Jesus the lion from the tribe of Judah. The scepter shall not depart from you, Judah. And what do we see in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8? This is the writer of Hebrews talking about Jesus. But of the Son, he says that is God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And by the way, if you ever want to know about the deity of Christ, this is one of the places to go. Hebrews chapter 1. Your throne, speaking of the Son, your throne, who? O God. Jesus, God, clear. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter shall not depart from Jesus. He will reign forever and ever. Judah talks about the obedience of the nations. Jesus commands us to go into all the nations and preach the gospel. Judah talk, or Jacob talks about the, this royal mount that Judah rides, and then we read in Matthew chapter 21, verse 5, as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem say to the daughter of zion behold your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt the foal of a beast of burden so it's just it's it's so beautiful and exquisite how these verses and how the entire hebrew scriptures anticipate the coming of christ now of course we also have the new testament And one of the things the New Testament is doing is anticipating the return of Christ. It is beautifully doing so in in ways that we can't begin to imagine right now. Jacob was looking into the future, but it was kind of misty. He couldn't see Christ clearly, but he was anticipating the coming of Christ, inspired by God as he spoke these words and as these are recorded for us in the Scriptures. Now we're looking at the New Testament And we're pondering and we're studying and we're praying and we're trying to figure things out and some of the things we're understanding, but not everything. And personally, I cannot wait for the day when Christ comes back and the Spirit cracks open all of these texts that I have been trying to penetrate all of these years to understand what they mean, especially what they mean concerning the coming of Christ, which perhaps I had no idea that they concerned the second coming of Christ, but there I'm gonna see it. What's going to be my reaction then? I wonder what I will say. Will, will I say, oh, I, I, had, I had no idea. I had no, I, I, I looked at that text hundreds of times. I translated, I studied, I, I preached. I had no idea that was there. I had no idea that was telling me about the coming of Jesus. I had no idea. Or will I say, oh, that makes all the sense in the world. Now, why, did, why didn't I see that the first time? I think maybe I'll do both. Maybe I'll just marvel in such, in such a way that I, I, I yeah, I should have known that all along, but but now, oh, it's just so awesome to be able to see that. So the days that are coming, my friends, are coming. They're coming. And it requires faith and patience to wait for them. But they are coming. Christ is coming. So now he goes to uh, Jacob, that is, goes to the next five sons. And uh, it's very interesting this one verse that pops out in the middle of his blessings to the next five sons. These are words of prosperity. He's saying days of prosperity are coming. But here's what he says in uh, verse uh, 18. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. In the middle of this, he says, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. He's talking to his sons, and he knows they're kind of a disaster. They've sort of made a mess of things. And as he's talking about the future and talking about words of blessing, he recognizes in the middle of all this that it's up to the Lord. He's speaking of the future, but he cannot make the future happen. Therefore, he says, in the middle of all of this, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. And that's what we do as well. When we're trying to figure things out, when we're trying to make a better future, we realize that we can't really do it. We have to wait for the Lord. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. So now let's look at uh, his words to Joseph, uh, beginning in verse um, 22. Joseph is a faithful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made alive, his arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts of the womb, the blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who has set apart, who was set apart from his brothers. Now, the, the, the words of, of Jacob to the sons, by and large, concerned the distant future, the tribes emerging from the sons. But here the words to Joseph more particularly address Joseph himself and the immediate future and the immediate experiences of these people together. Because, uh, because Joseph has been blessed by the Lord in a very particular way in the, you know, right now so that he can actually bless his sons and bless the Israelites and actually bless the Egyptians as well. So the Lord has made uh, Joseph fruitful. The Lord has made uh, Joseph resilient. He's taken on the attacks of his brothers. He's taken on the attacks of uh, Potiphar's wife, and he's been resilient. He's been able to survive these attacks and be fruitful despite these attacks, or maybe even because of them. And then the word blessing comes comes into play here. The Lord blesses uh, Joseph. And we know from the book of Genesis that when the Lord blesses his people, he blesses his people that they can be a blessing to others. Isn't that what Joseph has done? He has blessed his brothers. He has blessed the descendants. He has blessed the Egyptians and so forth. He has set the stage for the tribe of Judah. He has set the stage ultimately for the preservation of the people of God, the survival of the tribe of Judah, and for Jesus Christ to emerge from the tribe of Judah. We too, like Joseph, we can set the stage We can set the stage for Christ. We're setting the stage in many ways for the second coming of Christ. So what has Jacob been doing all of this time? Verse 28. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Jacob's been blessing the 12 tribes. And the 12 tribes are going to come from the 12 sons. And he's been blessing the individuals as well. Blessing them each with the blessing that is suitable to them. Which is really interesting. Somehow Jacob has this vision into the lives of his sons and into the future so that he's able to bless each of them in a way that is suitable to them. Even the anti-blessings for the first three sons somehow are blessings as well that are setting the stage for all of the great things that are to come for the people of God. So this is one thing that we can do, by the way, is we can look into the lives of other people, especially as we get to know them. And we can offer them a blessing that is suitable to them. You're able to see things. Sometimes people can't see themselves very well. And sometimes it takes an objective observer from the outside looking in who's able to observe a few things and say, I see this in you. You could do this. I, 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 could, I, I could see these gifts, these talents, this, this attitude you have, this, this heart that you have. I, I, I could see this. And, and I could see that the Lord could use this. Many years ago when I was a journalist living over in the East Bay, I began serving in this church over there, I I began studying the scriptures and teaching the scriptures to high school students and to college students, and I thought I would just be doing this for the rest of my life. I thought I would be a journalist, and then I would go to church, and I would study the scriptures, and I would shepherd, I would pastor, I would teach Bible studies. I thought I would do both of those things for the rest of my life. But there were some people who came up to me. independent of each other, many of them, in fact, missionaries that I, that, that, I, that I barely even knew, but they saw me serving in Mexico, and they came up to me, and they said, we see this gift in you. We, 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 we see your heart for the scriptures, your heart for people. We, we see that you could, become, you could be a pastor. And, and, and several different people came up to me and said that to me. They blessed me in a way that was suitable to me. And of course, you know, that's what I am now. I'm a pastor. I've been a pastor here for 27 years. And so I transitioned from being a journalist to being a pastor. But the Lord used those people in my life who blessed me with a blessing that was suitable for me. Can you do that for somebody else? Can you bless someone that way? Can you say, here's what I see in you? Okay, so Jacob has one more thing to do before he dies. Verse 29. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field uh, bought with the field from Ephron, the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into his bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. So... Jacob says, don't bury me here, don't bury me in Egypt, you've got to bury me in Canaan. And he's very specific about the place so that they can't miss it. It's very important to him that he be buried in Canaan. Why is that? That's the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Egypt is not their home, Canaan is their home. They're going to have to learn to live in Egypt for 400 years, but Jacob says, bury me back in the promised land. He's connecting his sons to the great promises of God. He is charging them to believe in the Lord. These are his last words, essentially, believe in the Lord. Bury me back there. That's where I belong. That's where the Lord is going to take you. Bury me back there. Believe in the Lord. And so, you think about this, okay? I mean, he Jacob is able to gather his 12 sons, he's able to bless them, he's able to leave them with a charge to bury him in the promised land, to connect them with the promises of God, and then he dies. He breathes his last and is gathered to his people. I say, what a way to go. <laughs> Could you want anything better? Better. People say, oh, I just want, it, want it to go like that. Now, now maybe you, you don't know how the Lord's going to take you. I want it to go like that. J- Jacob's got all this. He's got this time to impart these last words to his sons. And, and even Balaam, later in the book of Numbers, a pagan said, oh, I want to die like Jacob died. Oh, for a death like Jacob's. That's the way I want to go. I don't know how you're going to go, but one day you're going to go. But you might think about what kind of words are you leaving behind? What kind of blessing are you leaving behind? So what do you want to do before your time is up? Let me offer two potential answers to the question. One for those of you who are a little bit younger, and one for those of you who are a little bit older. I'll let you decide which category you fit into. And maybe some of you are going to find yourselves fitting into both categories. First of all, what emerges from this text for those of you who are younger, sitting around, listening to Jacob's words? Get to know the Lord. Get to know the Lord as well as you possibly can. I can promise you a couple things. It's not going to be easy. You're going to be plagued at times by doubts. You will be plagued probably by the fear of missing out. But I can also promise you this. It's worth it. Getting to know the Lord as well as you possibly can is worth it. It is worth giving everything you can to it. If this this text so exquisitely anticipates the coming of Christ, think about how exquisite the one to whom it points must be. That is, think about how awesome and breathtaking Jesus Christ actually is and how awesome and breathtaking, breathtaking it is to actually have a relationship with him. Get to know Jesus as well as you possibly can. I can promise you it's going to be hard, but I can also promise you this. In in his presence, that is the presence of the Lord, according to Psalm 16, there is fullness of joy, and at his right hand, pleasures forevermore. It is the way to go. If you are young, get to know the Lord as well as you possibly can, and do not give up. Do not turn back. Make it your lifelong quest to know the Lord as well as you possibly can. How do you do that? Well, we talk about that all the time here, so I'm not going to go into all the details except to highlight one thing that emerges from this text. What do the sons do? They gather to Jacob, this old wise man, and they listen to him. The fact is that Joseph listened to his father because when it comes to his end, he makes a similar request to that of his father. So, Listen to those who have walked with the Lord for a long time. That's what you need to do. Some young people don't have any use for people who are older. That's the older generation. What do they know? They lived in a different time. Our times are different. They don't know anything. Forget that nonsense. Listen to people who have walked with the Lord for a long time. Learn what you can from them. And then get to know the Lord as well as you possibly can. For those of you who are a little bit older, what should you do before your time is up? Proclaim his greatness. Proclaim the greatness of knowing the Lord. And this is our big problem in my view, in the world and even in the church that we only have the faintest idea of how great it actually is to know the Lord. And what we need are some older people around who have walked with the Lord a long time to be able to say, it is so great to know the Lord. And let me tell you why. Let me tell you some of my own stories of how the Lord met with me. We need those people around to pass on the faith to those who are younger. You you know you may have some regrets as you get older. I didn't do all the things that I wanted to do. Maybe there's some things on your bucket list and you realize, oh, you know, I'm just too old to do that now. But here's one thing you can do. As long as you have breath in your lungs, you can proclaim the greatness of the Lord. You can, you can proclaim the greatness of knowing the Lord. You can bless the next generation. This is what Jacob did, by the way. He said, bury me in Canaan. He's proclaiming the greatness of the Lord in a subtle, artistic way, yes, but in a powerful and beautiful way. Some people, as they get a little older, they complain just a little bit more. And one of the things they do is they complain about the younger generation. Oh, these people don't get it. You know, you don't want to be like that. You don't want to complain about the next generation. You want to bless the next generation. Listen to the psalmist. He says this, Psalm 71, verses 17 and 18. Oh God, from my youth, you have taught me. There's a story there. And I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, oh God, do not forsake me What? Until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Proclaim his greatness. Some of you old timers at PBC will remember a man by the name of Ray Miller. Ray Miller was a retired U.S. general. He was a great man. Loved the Lord. After he retired from the army, he served with Brother Andrew in the open door ministry, working with the persecuted church. And so he had, a, he had a vision. When I first started at PBC, he had a vision for a pastoral team from this church to go to a certain dangerous part of the world and teach pastors there and preach the gospel there. And Doug Goins was the leader of that trip, inspired by Ray Miller. And this was a, not an easy thing to do. I think about four or five of us went on that trip, and I was one of them. And you're going to this dangerous place where the gospel is not welcome, where they persecute believers... And at one point, Ray, probably in his 80s at that point, came up to Doug, who's now with the Lord, took him by the arm, looked him in the eye, and said, you have to trust the Lord. You have to trust the Lord. And of course, he said it as the old general, as if he were giving marching orders. The simple words, anyone could have said them, anyone probably could, lots of people say such words, but coming from Ray, who had fought many wars, both actual and spiritual, and walked with the Lord for many generations. Those words, coming from the old retired general, carried with them a certain weight. You have to trust the Lord. He was imparting a blessing to the next generation. So we went on that trip. It was an amazing trip. Not only that, it set the stage for many more amazing trips to that part of the world. I'm looking at Steve Holman. You were on a couple of those trips, right? And on one of those later trips, because of what Ray did in the first place, I found myself in an open field preaching the gospel one night to 3,000 people, the next night to 4,000 people, and the final night to 5,000 people. Because Ray Miller wanted to bless the next generation. You have to trust the Lord. This has been a hard nine months in my family. Um, Karen lost her, Karen, my wife, lost her sister in that time span. She lost her mother in that time span. And a week and a half ago, on May 20th, I lost my father at the age of 94. He had a stroke. And he lapsed into unconsciousness, and he died a week later. Interestingly enough, as he was dying, I'm looking at this text, Genesis 49. What's the text about? Father blessing his sons. So I'm spending a lot of time at his bedside. Uh, He's unconscious, but you never know when someone can hear at that point. So I keep talking to him. I keep sharing with him. I keep praying for him, praying with him. And uh, on one particular night, I, uh, I brought my laptop, and I sat by his bed, and I worked on this sermon from Genesis 49. And I told him what I was thinking. I told him what I was writing. And I told him how he had blessed me, how he had blessed me, father to son, in all the ways that he had blessed me. And if I could sum up the way that my father blessed me and my brothers, I would say this. He gave us a great life and he left us with great stories. That's not a bad legacy. If you can can impart to your children and give them a great life and leave them with some great stories, they'll be sharing those stories for the rest of their lives. And in fact, my brothers and I, just before my father had the stroke, we, we went on a fishing trip together and we were sharing those stories. And, and in the last week of my father's life, he couldn't do anything more. There was nothing more that he could do except lie in bed for a few days. But maybe there was one more thing that I could do. Maybe I could tell him how he had blessed me. Because the morning after I did that, sitting by his bedside, he died. He breathed his last and was gathered to his people. In conclusion, uh, I would like to read a letter that my mother-in-law, Paula, Karen's wife, wrote before she died. These are words of blessing that she left behind to her family and her friends. And these words were read by our daughters, Christina and Bethany, at Paula's funeral in February. She says this, these are my last words to you. I am saying goodbye to my friends and family. Thanks for being with me here on Earth. I hope that remembering the times we spent together will bring you, as it does me, pleasant thoughts. I don't mind, and I understand, if some of you grieve and sadly miss me for a while, but I want you to know that all my life was a a prologue with many trials and tribulations and wonderful, joyful happenings. Through it all, I always knew that God was watching and waiting in the wings until this day when I could leave with him, to be with him again. I've always waited for this day, looked forward to this time to leave this earthly life to be with God. I started my life feeling lonely, I never lost that lonely feeling. Yet each person I met or spent time with added so much pleasure to my life. I loved you all. Everyone, each with your special ways. My love had no exceptions. Goodbye for now. I leave for a better place with more family and friends who went before me and my heavenly father to greet me. How I missed them. I will be so happy to see them again. Goodbye for now. I hope to see you again. With love, I leave you, your friend, Paula. And at the end of Hamilton, Eliza sings to her husband, I can't wait to see you again. It's only a matter of time. Well, we're gonna partake of the table now. And uh, as I think about the table today in light of our text, I think of Jacob's death and I think of the death of Jesus. What do the gospels say about the death of Jesus? He had some last words, didn't he? He had some last words from the cross. Very important and significant words, of course. But what did he do right before he died? The Lion of Judah roared with a loud voice. And he said, into your hands I commit my spirit, and then he breathed his last. Jacob died a death, Jesus died a death, but Jesus' death was like no other. And and, and you could see it by the things that happened, the strange happenings there at the cross, at the scene of Jesus' death, you could see it. A lot of people didn't, but you could. And one particular person saw something. It was the Roman soldier, the captain of the death squad. He said, truly, this was the Son of God. My friends, this, this is, the death of the Son of God means, means this. It, it, mean, it means his body. It means his blood. It means... The bread, it means the cup, it means we partake of this, it means that we can have eternal life. And if you don't believe in Jesus, please invite Jesus into your heart. Then this becomes everything. Let me pray, and then you can partake as you wish. Heavenly Father, um, boy, uh, you know, you talk about a text that involves death, it's just hard. And then we experience so much death. We've, you know, I've experienced death in the last nine months. And then we talk about the things that are happening in our world and, and, and so much unexpected death. I mean, the, just the, the, the normal death, say, at age 94, that's, that's to be expected. But then there's so much unexpected death as well. But it's, it's, it's not supposed to be here. It's not the world that you created. It's here because of sin. And Jesus addresses that. Jesus dies for our sins, and he's resurrected that we might have new life, we who believe in him. Lord Jesus, thank you for this indescribable gift. In your name we pray. Amen.